1: Hello, friends and listeners. For the third time this week, I can welcome you. It's Friday, the 22nd of April. We are still in our very special fifth anniversary week of this podcast. And today is the moment of a second special edition for this anniversary. My guest here today will be Ronnie Pontiac. Ronnie Pontiac is well those of you who have followed closely the interview that I made with Tamra Lucet in January, I released that. You know who Ronnie Pontiac is, and I'm sure many others do know as well who Ronnie Pontiac is. Um, he was uh, appearing. Well, he's Tamra's husband first of all, her partner in life for many, many years now already, and he appears actually on the very first page, I believe, of that wonderful and lovely book that she wrote and released last November on the seven years that he and she passed with Manly P. Hall in, uh, in L.A. during the 1980s. It's a lovely book and, of course, um, it starts with meet, Tamra meeting her future husband, Ronnie, and they were later on going to be married by Mendley P. Hall. So actually today, as I will say in the interview, I'm having a protagonist of a book here, but that wouldn't be fair. It's much more to Ronnie than that. He, Of course, he was also, together with Samra, part of Lucid Nation, that great band from the 1980s, from... L.A. Riot Grrrl band—I don't know how you pronounce that properly. Anyway, he—he he was part of that as well, and we will hear, of course, again music by Lucid Nation during the show. And um, he is himself a writer, an astrologer. He—he'll tell us all about that. He's a very interesting person with a beautiful voice, and. Um, I'm very happy not only to have him, but I believe it's the first time that he came on a podcast to talk about Tamra's book and to, to to present his side of the story, which of course is very similar, but in, he sees it from his point of view and it gives us even more insight in that time there, those 80s, 1980s in Los Angeles around the people that were surrounding Manly P. Hall, Mr. Hall, as they both say so kindly. So, a very, very special moment. And to introduce the interview, we will even have Tamra appear herself to lead us over to the talk with Ronnie Pontiac. But before we go there, you know, it's a bit special here today. I do not do a second intro between the first piece of music and then the interview, because I'm not talking about websites today and about patrons becoming a bit. Have you become a patron already, by the way? No? Okay, good. Well, not good. Okay, okay. I'm not talking about that today. Um, So you are going to hear now a piece of music, as I said, by Lucid Nation, by the group that was two-thirds of which you will hear Afterwards, Tamra with her brief appearance in the interview, and after that, Ronnie Pontiac. And I will only come back at the very end, um, after the third piece of music, so I'm going to announce all three pieces of music now. All three, of course, by by Ronnie Pontiac, Tamra Lucid, and I don't remember who the third person of that band is, I'm afraid, but the group is called Lucid Nation. And so I'm going to introduce now the first piece, which is called Fun. Yes, Fun by Lucid Nation, after which we are going to delve right away, right away into the interview, which I will break at the usual 30, 35 minutes. And then uh, Lucid Nation will play Las Vegas, the instrumental, right then it's the second part of the interview. And after that, it'll be L.A. River, again by Lucid Nation, of course. And um, then I will briefly come back to sign us all off and say thank you to all of you who have participated in this show and listened to it. Right, so that will be me for today. Um, well, of course, you'll hear me in the interview as usual. But I would do anything else in between for this special anniversary episode number two. Enough talk from my end. No, one more thing to say. You remember we launched two days ago Bad Radio, and you should go there and this interview and Tamras. If you don't want to go on the website and fiddle and go back and listen, and where is Tamra? I want to listen before listening to Ronnie. Go on Cake About Radio, because there, those two episodes are played in a row three times a day in an eight-hour loop. So find out when, and you can do it there. Or you listen to other talks, not only from Thought Hermes, but from all the great podcasters, many of the great podcasters out there. Okay, so now have fun with Fun by Lucid Nation.
0: the interview
1: okay and now i am very glad in the first place to welcome someone back who some of you who are listening on the radio station just listened to a wonderful interview that we did back in january and it's a great pleasure to say hello again to tamara tamara hello how are you
2: hi Rudolf. how are you
1: Good. Thank you. How are things over there since we last spoke? Great. I see a lot, a a lot, a lot of things going on on Facebook, on the internet about your book. And uh, uh, it seems to be a great hit, isn't it? I think so. (laughs) i am no judge Don't of publishing. Don't be shy, Temra. Don't be shy. But I've gotten a
0: lot of very nice compliments. I'm I'm absolutely humbled by by how kind everybody's been about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there must be a reason for that, Simra. I'm sure. <laughs> And uh, well, today it's a kind of a very exciting moment for me because I've looked through my about 120 episodes on the thought Hermes podcast, but apart from people who of course do appear in books, but um, and you, well, they, they they are talked about in the book and you speak to them like Pete Carroll, I have in the show, for example, people like that. But I've never actually had a, the protagonist, a, a protagonist of a book on my show. And that is a completely new uh, situation for me. And um, Tamra, would you like to introduce uh, actually the the, the person I'm going to interview here today for us. My pleasure. Well, Ronnie appears
2: in my book, Making the Ordinary Extraordinary, as um, an evil enemy character and also Manly Hall's apprentice, the boy, Mm -hmm. and um, also my partner in many creative endeavors. So I think the um, most fun aspect of this is you actually, actually, like you said, you get to introduce a, a person that actually appears in this book and this, this bizarre story of
1: mine. Absolutely. And it's a great pleasure, Ronnie, to have you here on the show as my guest. Hello, Ronnie Pontiac. It's great to have you.
0: Thank you, Rudolph. I really appreciate it.
1: No, it's great. And thank you for agreeing to this and for um, making this happen, because I think uh, it's really time to to talk to you as well. Thank you, Tamra, for making that possible and being with us here for the first moments of this talk. That's and pleasure. <laughs> um, absolutely. I remember um, um, when I think it was on April the first. I don't remember the exact year, April the first that you met uh, that bad guy, as you call him, with with the sarcastic look on in his eyes and who then became the boy, as you said, for Manly P Hall. And of course, we're going to talk all about this Ronnie here today. And um, yeah, uh, so maybe maybe we should start, Ronnie, before we talk about your background, because I'm very interested to hear how you um also discovered manly behold because it didn't happen just like that it's not because you because it fell on you it's something must have been active research from your end but how did you live that april first evening from your side you know it's like those films when you see the same scene from both from both sides (laughs) Uh, um, how did you see that evening of april first when you first met tamra
0: I had been dragged to the club by my drummer searching for our ex-guitar player to proverbially put the band back together. I really wasn't too happy to be there and I remember it was raining heavily outside and I was thinking, this band is already over. Why are we looking to put it back together? And then I met Tamra briefly when her friend came up to talk to my drummer, and we were introduced. But I was wasn't very interested in that kind of of an experience at that moment. And I didn't know if she would like me at all. She seemed like a really wholesome girl, and wholesome girls were not attracted to me, at least in my experience up till then. But at the end of the night she approached me asking for help because she was cornered. And so I had never been asked for help by someone who seemed wholesome to me, but her fear was obvious. And so I protected her that night. And I like to think that I've been doing it ever since.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing story. I won't normally go in such private details to start an interview, but it's the opening scene of Tamra's book somehow. And, um, it was, it it was also that scene that immediately captures you when you read that book. And when you get into the story, then that leads both of you to meet Manley P. Hall. And, um, so, and I find the link very interesting. and. It's great that the two of you have uh, since then shared your lives and, and and that we can share that interview here today. Um, wh- what I would really be interested, be, what I have not totally understood, to be honest, when I talked to Tamra about this was how did the two of you when you then I think you moved in rather, rather quickly to, uh, in, in the same apartment um, how did you two discover Manly P. Hall as a personality and his book, The, the Bible, The Brick, the famous uh, the famous Manly P. Hall book, uh, Secret Teachings of All Ages? How did that happen? It, it doesn't seem obvious at all, at least from here, right?
0: Well, it was... It was funny. It was a period in my life in which there were these two dawns that occurred. They completely changed my life. At the time, I was a nihilist, and I had a very aggressive and destructive band, and I was known to be a bad character. In fact, she was warned not to talk to me that night when we first met by the proprietor of a club. And yet her intuition told her that I was the right one to talk to that was the first dawn that came into my life and it it utterly changed it. I was in love and she was so for astrologers, I'll simply say she's triple earth and I'm all fire and air. And so suddenly I was grounded in a lovely way. And it made me understand that there was more to life than revenge. And soon after that, I went looking for a book at the Bodhi Tree Bookstore used branch. I was thinking I was looking for a book about Atlantis that I'd seen when I was a kid, but what I found was the sixth edition of *The Secret Teachings of All Ages*, and it's like this. It's not the big one in the slipcase; it's a smaller black and white one, but it's still a big tome. And uh, it was so romantic looking to me; it looked like it belonged in a wizard's bookshelf.
1: Uh, may, may just hang on one second sorry we, we 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 go on with that in a moment but to go to the Bodhi bookstore famous bookstore of course at the time um wh- why would you do that i mean i just wouldn't expect maybe i'm completely wrong maybe the mm-hmm. endless scene was like that at the time but why would a um, rock punk musician walk into the Bodhi Bookstore? was that usual well
0: there's there's a there's an obvious explanation that you wouldn't know if you didn't know the Bodhi tree, which was that it was the only place in this area of town where I could get books by Baudelaire and Rimbaud.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes a link, of course. Yes.
0: In fact, I believe I took Tamra there on one of our very first dates. So it has, we had a long history with the Bodhi tree.
1: So and then somehow so you stepped into that body tree shop which okay of course i didn't know not not being not even californian but not from la at all what it meant to you at the time but um so you went in there you found that book and that was the second the second part of changing your life the second thing the second event somehow that encounter with the book that changed your life right yes
0: I took the book to a friend to show it off and to my shock, she knew about Manley Hall. Not only that, but she had a history with him in the sense that she and her friends were always going to his lectures and trying to flirt with him. And they thought that he was sort of the hot bachelor of that time. And she also shocked me by telling me that he was still alive and still lecturing on Sundays, a short drive, from where I lived. But I was very intimidated by the idea of meeting him. I had not lived a good life and I'd done some bad things. And I just thought that I would be instantly recognized as someone that was not welcome in the sanctuary of someone of such elevation, because reading the book was changing my life. And I would I would read a chapter and then tell Tamara everything in it. We would both be amazed. We had no culture, really just bits of it here and there. And suddenly this book opened up the idea that there was an entire world of inspiration. There was the history of so many brave people who, many of them risking death, recorded Mm -hmm. their experiences with the exploration of the soul and the laws of the world that are esoteric rather than exoteric. And it just changed how we viewed the world. And made it such a greater place to be in. It opened our 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 minds and our hearts, and and the art in that book as well was so inspiring. And both of us were were people that were much influenced by art, and seeing these incredible diagrams that were people trying to capture these adventures that they were having in self discovery and in discovery of how the world actually works it was amazing to encounter and i didn't think that i would be welcome amongst such people and it took actually took me months uh, with tamra gently nudging to to go there and the experience of seeing him lecture was incredible he obviously everybody knows that knows about him that he's an amazing lecturer he was wonderfully eloquent and yeah. he he would would be listing dates and times and and just Just everything fluent and beautiful with an amazing ability to combine esoteric and even archaic information and then to distill out of it practical advice for how to improve one's life, how to how to live a better life. He had a characteristic of talking to people and that happened to me the first day I'd happened to be going through this kind of the same woman had infected me with an earthquake phobia based on Edgar Casey readings and was preparing to move to Virginia Beach herself and was hoping to drag us with her. And and he looked right at me and and talked about earthquake fear being uh, usually submerged guilt and uh, that instead of moving around and, and being haunted by that guilt, which would always reappear, one would be better off to face what was inside than being worried about what may or may not happen outside. And that just Mm -hmm. really blew my mind to have him talk right to me like that. And later when I worked there, I found out that many people had that experience with him. He had a knack for serendipity. Uh, And the funniest thing about it is he couldn't see very well. I mean, he wasn't looking at me and recognizing my features that he had, he, I was really not, Very visible to him when he did that. So something was at work there. Some have called it channeling. Others say that it was because he was a master. I don't know what it was. I I like to think of it as a way with serendipity. I think that he might have argued it was Taoist, but Mm. whatever it was, it was an amazing experience.
1: I mean, you could have reacted um, being in a situation if you just described it when you first went there, you could have reacted in two ways. Well, go there, make the experience, find it interesting. But you could also have said, okay, I'm certain not to be welcome in that in those surroundings that you just said yourself and say, okay, that was it. I go out again. But but there must have been something, maybe it was Tamra, but there must have been something that told you to to dig further, to go further into that world. Can you, can you name that? Can you describe what happened there?
0: There's a sense of recognition that it happened with Tamara. I remember very clearly one of the first times I was standing next to her on that very first night that I had a feeling unlike any I'd ever had before. Like I was standing on the right place on earth. Mm. And when I watched him lecture and he, he talked right at my phobia, I just wanted to be near this fountain of wisdom. I, I was willing to do anything um, menial in order to just have time around that place and to support his activities. And I wanted to come listen to every lecture and listen to every lecture given at the place. And there were some wonderful lecturers, Stefan Heller and Roger Weir and many so it was like stumbling upon a mystery school or a a university or something in the middle of a, of a wilderness and a world of knowledge is suddenly made available to you and you just want to be there all the
1: time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, but you just mentioned Stephen Herler and others that were at the same time also teaching in LA in general, not, not in the same building, I guess. Um, what what was it that made you choose manly p hall just a book they or did, they anything did, else mm-hmm. they did
0: lecture at prs were, and sometimes did, were both okay. of them roger and stefan were both uh, substitute lecturers for mr hall until i was the designated one so they they had a deep relationship you though they had their own institutes and their own activities and their own places to lecture but they had a deep relationship with prs and Mr. Hall always fostered them and, uh, they added a lot to, to the level of the culture at that place. The Mr. Hall was the one speaking directly to me. He, Mm -hmm. the book that he had written, the, the, the library, the place that just seeing what he had created was so amazing. I'd never seen such sincerity or such compassion for the ignorance of the world and and myself being so very ignorant when I stumbled in there without even a, a sense of social contract. Mm. It was the most civilizing possible influence outside Tamra.
1: I like when you say... Compassion for the ignorance of the world. Um, before we continue with your own personal story, um, uh, can you can you ex- uh, expand a bit on that? Because I think uh, it's a very very good way of putting things. Like I also feel what what Mr. Hall did when I mean I didn't experience him personally. I only listened to many of his lectures, which are available online, etc. But yeah it's a feeling that there is like a a missionary in the good sense a missionary out there who wants to open people's minds right yes
0: i would say that well if you read if you read eliphas levy in the great secret and the chapter on fascination he he's he's his usual blunt and, and humorous self and describing humanity as as very predominantly stupid. Mm. And he feels that, that there is a place for the use of fascination, whether in the church or by by practitioners, because it's better to fascinate stupid people into doing the right thing than to allow them to become fascinated by doing the wrong thing. And in the case of, of Mr. Hall, I think that he he not only created uh, many sources, many deep wells that, that you could draw water for your, your soul from in his books and his pamphlets and his lectures, but he also created a community. And one of the things that's troubling, especially in America, I don't know how it is in, in the EU, but, but so many practitioners in America are isolated and, and there isn't much sense of community. With his journal and his newsletter and his library and his Sunday lectures with the refreshments afterwards and his cute, amazing bookshop where you could find treasures, he created a big community. And it very much reminds me of, there's a quote from Bell Hooks that I love. Uh, She said, I'm often struck by the dangerous narcissism fostered by spiritual rhetoric that pays so much attention to individual self-improvement and so little to the practice of love within the context Mm -hmm. of community. And he really did that. He, he conducted funerals. He conducted weddings, including our own. He, he, he was part of the birth and the death of of so many uh, families that that followed him over the decades. And this was a community devoted to, to learning. And to all the mystery traditions, Eastern and Western, what a thing to have in Los Angeles.
1: What I find fascinating, well, many things I find fascinating about Manly P. Hall is, but one of the things is that if you don't dig a bit deeper insight, if you just listen to his lectures or read the secret uh, teachings or other of his books, um, you do not really get where his personal practice or belief or whatever you would like to call that stands. Yes. When you know a bit more about him, you you find out. But it's not something that's obvious, like with most of those Teachers or occultists practitioners who very clearly belong to the golden dawn or belong to whatever, right? Um, but with him, it was not just his teaching that was global, but he seemed as a person um, holistic um, uh, esotericist. Would you would you see him like that as well? You who knew him personally very well. Certainly, he. He
0: loved all the history, all the traditions, all the depictions of gods, every every piece of the spiritual history of humanity was precious to him as as preserving someone, someone who cared enough about it with their experience to create something that could come down into the world and wind up in that vault of his. And he had a sense of of I think that's what this that is the the, the big Book is his attempt to preserve so much of this material that had come into his hands that most people would never be able to see. They would never be able to read the gems that he was pulling out of these old books. And so he gathered them all together into this compendium. And in doing so, at least for the Western tradition, created this, this, as he called it, encyclopedic look at, at a history that had been greatly neglected but that actually has been extremely influential, especially through countercultures, all through Western history.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is amazing. Uh, Before we continue with your personal story, you just mentioned something before that this division among occultists occurs. You know, that like everyone seems to be riding their own horse, but not looking to keep the, the, the... the group together, right? But not not going forward, not being interested in going forward together as a group, but rather do your individual stuff. And that was so different with him. Do you think that our time, our 21st century, the way things happen nowadays with a lot of books available with the internet and with podcasts like the one we do here, it has become would have become easier? Um, or has it become more difficult in a way to, to do what he did because there is so much around or everything is all the time available or whatever the reason might be, I, I'd like to hear you on that.
0: I find it interesting that among the younger readers of Tamara's book, who either review it or, or contact her about it that they have such a sense of nostalgia for what she describes that they, they, they don't have opportunity for the level of connection that was possible at a place like PRS and that they do mostly exist online. Most of them see their clients online. They, they do most of their learning online and to actually be around groups of people, Day after day, each of whom has their own specialized studies and all of whom are sharing their discoveries and, and encouraging each other. And imagine what an amazing benefit it was to me to have all those people there, all those mostly older scholars, even if they were amateur scholars, who could turn me on to a book or tell me about a lecture that Mr. Hall gave in 1955 or or <laughs> critique my lecturing from the point of view of someone who'd watched him for 40 years. It was an yeah. invaluable experience, and, and it's very rare to have that today. Even if you do have a community, they meet infrequently, oh, if regularly. It isn't an everyday kind of function. And, and the fact that Mr. Hall is able to create a place that did that for so long, I think is very special and sets him apart in some ways.
1: Oh, completely! It, it it's like a, almost a Pythagorean school of the 20th century, right?
0: <laughs> yes, and he was very influenced by that. He he. One of the things that he taught me was the Pythagorean recollection.
1: Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Now let, let's go back to you yourself, because because that's why we're here, and you and the book that we we relate uh, through you too. Um, What I find fascinating is the speed with which all that followed happened. Um, It seems to me as a reader um, that um, from the guy who walked in and was fascinated the first day by Mr. Hall, you became his... Well, we became the lecturer who really placed him within basically months well it seems so it was probably not the case but uh, you you'll you'll put that right but um, it, it all went extremely fast what that means to me is that a he put an enormous trust in you and b you you must have developed at a speed at the speed of light um, why how did you do that how did you how did you make those steps so quickly
0: well imagine having manly hall himself there to mentor you on a daily basis when i began working on well i guess we should go back and say that that after i volunteered to do menial labor because i grew up with a family that had a lot of languages Mm. They thought that maybe I would be able to help him in finishing his alchemical bibliography. He had fired the actual bibliographer for refusing to remove references to bodily fluids. And right. so. May was,
1: I ask what, what languages we are talking about here in your background? Which were the languages that you speak? In my
0: family, you could hear Russian spoken, French, German, Polish.
1: Oh, uh, right. Hmm. Okay. And cat. and, and cat, exactly. <laughs> right. So interrupted you on that, but uh, then it's just
0: important it's, you know. Mm. So that's how Tamara tells a story. I, I really don't want to, to do it injustice to her book by telling it myself because her all of her, the way she describes it is so wonderfully vivid and accurate. And so yeah. but I will say that that I I was surprised to walk into his office At first. I was surprised to get a phone call telling me to come meet him. And this was because of the supposed facility of languages that I had. And he, he was so wonderful. He was just sitting behind his desk with a kind of twinkle in his eye. And he had behind him this phalanx of four older women who ran everything at PRS and who were looking at me with very suspicious glares. But he, using a W.C. Fields accent, asked me to sit down and make myself miserable, which is something he commonly did when meeting someone. And I sat in this uncomfortable wooden chair in front of his amazing, ornate Chinese desk, carved desk with a place stuffed with books and art and and a big Japanese altar with all sorts of yab-yum figurines and just a a, a temple-like environment with a feeling in it that I have never felt anywhere else. Just this big hum. I I imagined it was like Tibetan monasteries or just somewhere where spiritual pursuits are the constant dedication and there are people of a high elevation interacting. And Mm -hmm. it later changed when when he left. I went one last time there and someone else was in that room having taken over the society and the room no longer had that feeling. So obviously, it was him and something to do with his long work in that room. And so he, he had a galley in front of him and I didn't know what a galley was, but he slid it over to me, a big pile of white paper. And he said, that's my alchemical bibliography and I want you to edit it for me. He had asked me a couple questions about how good am I with language? And I was very honest. I said, I don't speak. I understand some, and I can read it only with the help of a dictionary that was fine and so to my shock he said get started right now and let's go i i said again i can't really do this i don't know anything about bibliographies or alchemy or or any of this stuff i'm a beginner and i don't want to i don't want you to think that i i I can look at this there was latin in there and greek and and languages i had no knowledge of and so he, he insisted that I would be fine and he would provide necessary guidance and he kicked me out with a galley. And somehow, I don't know how she got there so fast, but by the time I got out of the room marked private and walked into the library, Pat Irvin, who'd been glaring at me next to his desk, the vice president of PRS, was mm. standing in front of me with her hand out saying, give me that galley. And I thought bless you. You're right. I have no business being around this, but what an honor it was Mm -hmm. to meet him and what an amazing experience. And maybe I can get something to do around here. But that afternoon back home, there was a phone call from his secretary, Edith. And she said, Mr. Hall wants to see Ronnie tomorrow at 9am sharp. Mm -hmm. I went down there I was resolute. I was not going to take the job. I was not going to let him talk me into it. I I had no experience with that kind of work. And I was, I just thought it was the wrong thing to do. I wanted to have some form of communication with this incredibly wise human being. And I couldn't start by misrepresenting myself. And Tamara, and I agreed that that was the right way to go. Meanwhile, she had already been sort of absorbed into the functions of the PRS as somebody who could help out in shipping and do office stuff and, and maybe mm-hmm. work out a little bit in the, in the get gift shop if needed. Yeah. But he, he said to me now, this time there was only him and his secretary and he had the galley again and he shoved it across to me and he said, he said, you're going to work on this. And if anybody takes it from you, you come to me, you work only for me. Mm. And I told him again, I can't do this. And he said, every morning we'll get together and we'll go over what needs to be done. And every afternoon you can come in and I'll look over what you've done to see if you've done it correctly. You will have access to the books in the vault. You can ask me any question you like. That's why it's now, something when somebody
1: tells you that, right? Yeah, it's amazing. It's
0: astonishing. Even as I, as I tell you, as I uh, having experienced it, I still can't believe it. And it, it was too good a situation to turn down. And I also felt if he has that kind of faith in me, he's he's seeing something in me that I didn't know about myself. And I wanted to be fiercely loyal to him that somebody of his stature would, would stoop to trying to help somebody like me. It, it was, it was amazing. And so if nothing else, I wanted to be as loyal as I could be. And if he thought I could do this, I had to do it. And it was amazing to, to work with him like that to, to come in every morning and he would go over, let's go over the, these chapters. And sometimes he would be in the vault and he would show me the books. I had to remeasure all the measurements. And so I I, every book in that alchemical bibliography was in my hands at one point or another, and I was allowed to look through them and to, to ask questions and and all of that was just a dream come true.
1: an experience affect a life? I mean, much later, right? And um, we'll go back to the wedding and to the, to the sad end of that part time of your life, maybe also a bit, but how after that much later now, until today, how did it affect and change your life? And how do you see that today with the distance of the, of the years?
0: I, I'm, I'm almost I can't really describe it, um, Rudolph, because it was literally like being picked up off the street and brought into civilized society and taught how to read and write. And it was, it was a complete change of, life, of of how one can approach life. And even though we went into other worlds involving film and music and activism, everything that we learned there stayed with us. It, it, it became, it made of life a lifelong experiment of applying the principles of seeing what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes of being surprised and other times disappointed and, and always that sense of, of the adventure of discovering one's spiritual destiny of finding the truth about the soul. So how can you possibly even gratitude seems meager when you're describing someone who made that possible? He couldn't, he couldn't in his own power enlighten us, but he gave us everything that we needed to live our lives in a way that allowed us to, to learn for ourselves. And it, it always reminds me of, um, the, the, founder of shingon buddhism which is a form of buddhism that he was particularly fond of and which which i was therefore exposed to and fond of as well because of his work he was one of the earliest to write about it in america um, the founder kukai had a saying which was do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the men of old seek what they sought and i think this is what he represented this is why he didn't give us his own specific recipe for how to achieve it. He wanted to give us all of them. And he often said that the world is our teacher, that, that what we encounter in our lives in every moment is an opportunity to learn.
1: It's fascinating to hear that from you because uh, it's, very, it's very moving somehow. And, you know, that's also... Returning a bit to the book that's, uh, I told that last time when I spoke to Tamra, but then um, when I received the book from Injuriscent, like I often do, received books from them, and I was looking for it because Mr. Hall was. I have four of those, um, printings from his, from his, uh, book, from the for the nice edition with all those 52 plates. I have four of them hanging here on my wall, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I, I was very much aware of that, but, and then I grabbed that book and I read that book and, um, it just was so touching the whole story it was uh, like a memoir somehow and what you're saying right now here is goes is exactly in the same vein it's it's um, a personal experience now that's because you tamara you are able to do that but it seems to me also a little bit because in a way mr hall gave you the possibility to to tell the story like that or is that exaggerating what i'm saying
0: I would agree with you. I think that it was wonderful for me to be able to observe him, to, to talk to him, to see as many lectures as I wanted. I, I was allowed to come in free whenever he lectured, even though it was only a dollar. And, and he was such a masterful speaker. And I do think that, especially when I listened to recordings of myself then, that I was sort of doing my mini Manly Hall version of what I was observing from him. And some of them were pretty good, I think. And I went over well enough to become his designated substitute lecturer. But he, he definitely gave me this sense of, of how to, to connect up to eloquence, how, to, how to, to take the work that you're doing on a weekly basis, your studies and your practice, and to be able to share them verbally with people in a way that they can take home and benefit from and it gives a double value to the work. So I would watch him work on perhaps two books at a time and various pamphlets and articles for the journal while doing his other activities and responsibilities. And and then I would be helping him. He would tell me go get this book and that was another amazing thing about him. He would tell me the the, the exact shelf, the 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 binding and and where I would find it exactly. Just in the library, uh, amazing. And this is is a library of thousands and thousands of volumes and over and over again, he would say to me, it's going to be in the left corner on the top floor and it's going to be in the fourth shelf and it'll be a red binding or whatever it was. And then I would know what he was working on. And I would then go to the Sunday lecture and hear him drawing from that information and expanding it with his vast oceanic knowledge of these materials and and then turning all around into ways that that simple people could go home and live better lives
1: hmm. well, well that seems to me the most amazing things i mean when you listen to those uh, what's it about 150 lectures that are available out there for, for in the internet nowadays, right? Something like mm-hmm. that must be. Uh, when you listen to them, um, they are deep, they are always interesting, but they are never over the top. You never get a headache, so to speak, <laughs> uh, when you listen to them, because they they, they they speak somehow to the heart, right?
0: Yes, I agree. His sincerity was, was part of, I think, the charm and the power of what he was doing there. And he he was honestly trying to help.
1: Now, how was that when the first time you had to replace him speaking there? Um, that must have been quite the moment for you, no? Well, I've been...
0: Lecturing was not my idea. It was the idea of Pearl Thomas, the librarian. And she just thought it was time for me to having studied so many, so many books working on the alchemical bibliography to go out there and to share it with the community. And Mm -hmm. Mr. Hall's secretary thought it was a great idea. They booked me without telling me they were going to giving me a Sunday as my very first lecture. It wasn't his replacing him, but it was, it was a Sunday lecture and he was on his, his off day and I, I took it because it was part of these people were smarter than I was. they have been mentoring me and taking me along this path and teaching me amazing things about life and, and learning. So I thought I should do what they thought I should do. I went and talked to him about it. He said he thought it was a great idea and I should not use notes. He said, you need to know your subject well enough to be able to be eloquent without them. And so it was very nerve wracking. Tamara drove me to the, to the lecture, A big crowd turned out to see who this person was that had suddenly been taken under Manly Hall's wing. And many people mm-hmm. were surprised at how young I was. And there was. How a were you then? 21, 22, something like that. Wow. Somewhere in yeah. there. Yeah. And so. I got up and I lectured for 90 minutes and I did a pretty good imitation (laughs) of my mentor. Good enough that people were impressed. Everybody liked it. And the people who put me up to do it were really pleased. And even he was very pleased. And then over time, as they gave me more lectures, including weekly series lectures upstairs in the library with Blavatsky's portrait looking over my shoulder, as Tamara describes, mm-hmm. it it uh, it became I became known as a good lecturer, and people were were really responding. I was something I was a new talent on the scene. I was very young, and people found a lot of inspiration in that, as if the torch was not being passed to another generation, but that another generation would appreciate what they appreciated about Mr. Hall. And so I, I became good enough that when he became more and more ill, as he, as he got older, he finally designated me as his substitute lecturer. I'm not sure why he did it. I, I certainly think that, that that the other lecturers that had substituted for him were fantastic. And I would say that they were probably bringing quite a bit more to the table than I was, but there was something about the way that his community was reacting to me that he wanted to encourage. Mm. After that, I was, I, I learned to trust it. I, I felt that I was tuned into something. And as long as I kept the rhythm going of studying and talking about the materials with Tamara and with him where I could and with other friends that I'd met at the, in that community, I would, was able to get up there and share it in ways that other people found valuable. And that was, at first, very a wonderful experience uh, to discover that you have that talent, to be useful to people in that way, to serve the community and not just him, was, it was a revelation to me at first.
1: It gives you purpose somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, that that that's an amazing story, but but of course, uh, as we read in the in this book, um, um, what happened there also affected somehow your your private life, or it the two things mixed up because then you got married by him, right?
0: Yes, he he was he and Marie were really behind it. And Tam and I, we didn't. We were actually secretly engaged just between the two of us. We didn't really want to get married. We just thought, mm-hmm. from the families that we came from, what we had observed, we just thought that marriage was not a good institution, and that in fact it could hurt our relationship. So we we were happy the way it was, and we were pretty shocked when uh, it was they were. It was Mr. Hall and Marie, and they, they, they were very serious. And it was, he, she was about to take him um, from the office at the end of the day. She'd always come to pick him up, uh, except the days when Art Johnson would, would, would drive him when she couldn't. But he, they were very serious. They'd been talking about us, and Edith had a mischievous look on her face. And they wanted to talk to us about something very important over dinner. So they took us to their favorite restaurant, which they did many times, and, and announced that they thought we should get married. They had already been looking at our charts. They'd already picked out several dates and mm-hmm. I, I was taken aback. So was Tamara, but then he was, he wanted to, he said, I'll do the ceremony myself and we'll do it in my backyard. So to be married by Manly Hall in his own backyard, under these, these two huge trees that were out there that shared a common trunk. Uh, We just couldn't say no to it, even though we even went into it feeling a lot of trepidation. But but they again, we felt that that we had received so much from these people, so much wisdom, so much nurturing that it would be wrong for us to to now say that they were wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't want to expand too much on on the end of the story. It's it's a kind of a sad end. But Tamara in her book manages in a brilliant way to to let everybody feel the sadness and also kind of the not guilt. That wouldn't be the right word, I think. But the, 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 the sorrow she felt that she, she felt she had not been able to to keep that from him from happening. Right. Um, but um, maybe just a few words about how you felt when the time thats how I how very much I feel it as a reader and um, how the time had come to its end somehow. it it, it just needed to finish uh, even if it finished in a sad way. Right.
0: I think Tamara captures beautifully the, the shift that occurred because there were years there where it was several years where it was really dreamlike in a very positive way. It was a, a, a sanctuary, like an oasis or a little paradise for us. And then things began to shift beginning with, as I became a more popular lecturer, the experience of lecturing changed very much and the politics that grew up around me were disconcerting. I believe it was in part because he was getting so much older and missing lectures and people thought that he might be leaving soon. And they thought that I presumed that I might be the designated successor since I was a designated lecturer, which I was not. Um, and so the, the politics, the, the, the ambitions, the manipulation, the, pre, the predators that suddenly began coming around. And At the same time, Marie Hall was warning me not to, to go down the same path and really warning Tamara that don't let him turn into another Manly Hall and leave you sitting here without your own life and your own expression, because in that mm-hmm. inequality, you'll never find happiness. And then in the midst of all this, he told me that he wanted us to leave. And he explained to me that, that soon he would be going and that many of the people at PRS were older, as old as he, and they would be going. And he didn't want Tamar and I to have to live through these endings and the inevitable chaos that would occur. And I took it as a test. I didn't want to leave. I had great feelings of loyalty to him. Still, I still do. And I, kept coming back. And at first I started saying things like, well, you have to approve what I do next. And I would come to him with different ideas. I had been accepted to some Ivy league schools for a PhD program. And so I said, what if I get a degree in this and I come back and I defend PRS through academia with their tools. And he he didn't like that one. And we went through this dance for a while of me still working for him, Tamara and I still screening for him. And during that time, in the very beginning of it is when Fritz showed up and I remember screening him with Tamara and I remember that we both were very creeped out by him and we both told Mr. Hall that we thought that he was someone that was up to no good. And for whatever reason, he became good friends with the Halls and at first it did look like a good thing. He, He had Mr. Hall on a diet. He was making sure they were eating organic food. He brought over people who were volunteers helping her organize her work. And he even got her online at the beginning of the Internet with a computer. And so she immediately lost interest in me. I've been working with her. I I couldn't produce such miracles. And that was okay. I I learned a lot from her. And Mr. Hall was asking me to leave. And so I started to, to back out somewhat but we were so uncomfortable with the situation that Tamara and I decided to do a, the only time we ever did what we would call a welfare check because the halls had said to us, you're welcome to come over anytime. You don't even have to call. And we had never done that, but we did do it that time. And he answered the door and he didn't want to let us in. The only reason we got in was because Marie heard my voice and invited us in and then he flitted around he was he was listening in corners and just absolutely a a really the tension that that he felt bad movie in a way (laughs) it is very much it was like like a melodrama and we we felt that he thought he was up to no good and we couldn't understand why they they weren't sensing this but at the same time we thought look, this is the halls. They know what they're doing. We, we must be, maybe this is just us being resentful that he's the new star and we're leaving and, and paradise is closing its doors to us. So we, we just figured we can't, we can't really do anything about it. But then Tamara was so alarmed by that visit that as she says in the book, she had one last meeting with him about Fritz and she really went hysterical. And I, I was shocked and dismayed by the whole thing. I, I, I thought that it was just it was terrible because Marie was prone to these kind of shouting fits and being very emotional and having conspiracy theories about history. And here was Tamara with a conspiracy theory about this friend of the halls. And she was, was shouting at him like Marie. And I knew it was a disaster. I did not know it was the last time I would ever see him but at that point we decided it was she was so embarrassed by the whole thing and and we decided well he's been asking us to leave all this time this obviously it's time to go this is the moment and so we did
1: yeah it's a moving story it's a moving story it really is in you know in on the first page of of Tamara's book on on the uh, there are a few review excerpts right from 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 that and one is by my good friend tobias Churton. i think he's he's the person that has appeared most often of anyone on this show so far <laughs> and tobias he says something in his in his little comment there that i have to ask you about because um that leads us into the present from from the story back then it says bitten by the Rosenkreuz bug as much as her subject, right? <laughs> <laughs> so have you both been bitten by the Rosenkreuz bug at some point? And how much has that now? Let's speak about you. Um, how much has that affected you today? How, what is, if you want to talk about it, if not, that's fine. But what's your practice today? What, what, what do you still do, uh, in practice and not just in theory from those teachings.
0: To answer your Rosicrucian question first, because of my work on the alchemical Biblio, which includes many Rosicrucian books, including the Fama, of course, and, and the other mm-hmm. classics mm-hmm. and the many, many reactions to it. I was exposed at first to Rosicrucianism through that. And then as I explored it through the library and discovered all the different permutations of it, including Max Heindel's and and Spencer Lewis and just everybody who, who who sort of evolved it into something different in here and also in Europe and elsewhere. And, and also having access to something like the Baxter Manuscripts, which were alchemical in nature, but included a record written by this ship's surgeon about what he claimed was a Rosicrucian initiation that he had in Africa. So, and Mr. Hall, of course, talked about the Rosicrucians. So at first I, I had what Tamra calls in the book initiate fever. It's one of the more difficult chapters for me because I did just. hook, line, and sinker go into I want to be part of the invisible college, I want to do all the things one must do to do that, and so there must be celibacy and special diets and special practices and vows of silence and all the things that we can do to accomplish this. And now it's interesting because when I would talk to him about it, he was at the time working on a book and it was about the Rosicrucians, and he began telling me that he didn't feel that the way that he had originally presented the Rosicrucians was was the best way, and that he saw it differently now. That rather than, than encouraging the feeling that there was an invisible brotherhood out there of superhumans who were working for the good of humanity, that he should have said that that in every era the rosicrucians are essentially those people who are doing everything they can for the greater good and who are illuminated in that in that process and so i think he was partly trying to to tell me that i was way overboard and he was also remembering all the times that he had dealt with people because he had many people coming to him for help and and I, one of my jobs was, was sometimes working with them or screening them. And, and there were people who had sort of gone off the deep end on, on various aspects of the mysteries and of metaphysics and, and it impacted their lives in bad ways. So my first reaction was to just overdo it. And part of that was based on him having given me his own copy of the brotherhood of the rosy cross which has some penciled notes from him in it. And it just seemed like such a, a statement. And hmm. so I, didn't, I finally read the book. And, and thank you, Alistair Crowley, for his witty nickname for, for A.E. Waite, who did do some amazing and wonderful scholarship. But the description dead Waite was fairly accurate. And Waite is not someone who glamorized the Rosicrucians. He, he was just presenting what history he could find. Now, over time, never we've never stopped studying and working and looking at the newest scholarship and all these areas. And in fact, just finished a, a first draft of a book about the origins of Rosicrucianism, really more the context about the court of Rudolf the second and and also the Bohemian spring and the tragedy of Frederick and Elizabeth, because. In my opinion, these were hugely influential events in terms of, of what became the, the, the Rosicrucian manifestos and movement. And over time with new scholarship, I've come to see it as something quite different from how I originally saw it. And I, I actually find this new version more thrilling. It's, it's something that, that remains, I've never forgotten what it was like to be in that vault and to see these Rosicrucian books and to know what these men were risking in writing and publishing these books and to see the, the, the feeling of faith in the future, even though they were, many of them were waiting for the apocalypse at that point, but they, they knew that before the apocalypse happened, there would be this amazing reawakening of knowledge as, as humans regained all of Adam's knowledge and they were eager to 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 experience that and to, to help bring it on and so they they this is why they forwarded science and all of the early beginnings of science where astrology and astronomy and alchemy and chemistry were really the same things there and the intelligencers who were sharing information across the oceans with each other were sort of i think of them as the first internet in a very slow way because suddenly discoveries that were happening in the colonies would be shared with hermeticists or alchemists who were in the UK or in Germany and they, there was a common pool of knowledge created and I found that, I still find that very inspiring that, that people had that creative audacity that they they wanted to have their own relationship to the truth and that they were willing to take the things that that they discovered and, and put them into forms that could be inspiration to people later and and this library and particularly the vault seemed to me to be a, a shrine for heroic spiritual outlaws if you will or what he called himself a rogue scholar
1: hmm. amazing and um uh does that buck which bit you there still work in you today i mean also in a practical way i'm insisting i know but uh, you don't have <laughs> to answer the question if you don't want to i understand just let me know but um, it's just it would just be interesting to know if you are still or or if you keep it like mandy hall you just do your thing and don't talk about it
0: <laughs> i'll just say that i still find rosicrucianism inspiring
2: mm.
1: okay good We have already plans, you and I, to meet again because uh, you mentioned it briefly in the beginning of this talk. And now we should uh, make a little, a little teaser on that, what's coming up uh, in the not-so-far future for you and Tamra, I believe, um, because I know about the book that you're going to be presenting early 2023, so early next year in about nine months or so american metaphysical um, american metaphysical religion is its title and do you want to say a few words about that and i think there is another project that you prepare uh, together with Tamara, another book project right
0: yes the first one american metaphysical religion the esoteric and mystical traditions of the new world is a almost 700 page book i'm sorry to tell readers but it's filled with stories that are like manly hall in a sense there's a rich 400 year heritage of influence uh, of this sort of underground of religion from all cultures from all corners of the world that has been boiling in this american melting pot and it has very little self-awareness many of the heroes the 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 people who really contributed to the creation of this thing if it is a thing they are not known although they were extremely influential i mean so many forgotten with stories that are just inspiring and some of them are many frauds and yet some of them are still inspiring and yet there are also some true it appears what, what william james called white crows lots of black crows in American metaphysical religion, and they're still amusing and they still can teach you a lot about America and about, about ourselves. And often there's a lot of wisdom contained in in their madness or their fraudulence. But there's, there were also some tremendous examples of what seemed to be pure spirits who had a lot of wisdom to share. And I have been studying this stuff since I was working for him for Manly Hall. Because I first encountered people like Alexander Wilder or the Platonist this bound volume of a newspaper that he had that was published near St. Louis around the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral and all it contained were translations of Plato, Eamblicus, Plotinus, and even translations of Eliphas Levy. And I just remember being so shocked when I saw it and I wanted to know who were these people? And there was hardly any research on any of them, even Alexander Wilder. And so I have been, ever since then, just exploring wherever possible a new scholarship about the history of metaphysics in America. And once this term was coined, first I think that Harold Bloom coined it, but I'm not sure about that. I know that it was really put into circulation by Catherine Albanese, wrote a tremendous book called Republic of mind and spirit, wonderful book, really highly recommended. And, and so in a sense, academia had put all of this together and said, you know, even though the names of what these people are doing, the, the gods they're talking to the individual practices may not be the same, but overall it's the same. It's, it's not Christianity, strictly speaking. In fact, many of these scholars have argued, Christianity isn't even Christian anymore in America. It has changed into it's more American metaphysical religion than it's Christianity at this point. And you can see that in the change over time from, uh, we meet, we must be meek and poor and suffering is a lot of life. And that's not the way most Christianity is in America. In America, you're going to get rich. You're going God's going to favor you. You're not going to wind up in the hospital because God is going to make sure you don't get covid. So this this has more to do with the positive thinking movement and American metaphysical religion than it does with the origins and the teachings of of Christianity. So I was amazed that this is mostly unknown by the people who are practicing it. And if, if all the people who sort of fall into this rough umbrella, we're practicing it. It would be one of the biggest churches in America. And hmm. and so that struck my imagination. And I thought, what about getting all these saints of this unknown church, all these people who, who did these daring experiments with their lives and and in some cases really changed the way that America went forward and putting all these stories together into one place. So you could encounter someone like Tom Morton, who, whose nickname was the pagan pilgrim. Uh, we, we can't even imagine a pagan pilgrim, but he was an important part of American history in the beginning. And he was a typically American character. He had wild parties that the pilgrims were angry about. And they, he, it was just a classic split that we see in America today between those who want to be very strict, and and very by the book and the way things are done and those on the other hand who just want to have fun and celebrate and and they believe that that it's well it's really what it is is the english civil war isn't it working out in america it's it's the cavaliers and their their pleasure in life and and prince rupert and 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 then the Puritans. And this played out in the America. Social
1: and, movement somehow.
0: Yes. And, and this played out mm-hmm. in America, and it still does. That mm-hmm. That's the second book. And then the third one is one that Tamara and I wrote together. I'm not sure what the title will be. The working title is Friend, Use It to Prosper. Orpheus, the Orphic Hymns. And actually, I think it's Orpheus, Counterculture, and the Orphic Hymns. And so what we did was... We looked into all the latest scholarship because there again there's been an amazing revolution in academia that has completely changed the perspective on orphic studies.
1: And well, definitely. there's been many, many new works lately on the Yes, research. it's exciting. Yeah. And so this is a book that that
0: gives you the history. The the we look at the origins and how uncertain they are. We present both sides that that there was at one time the belief that Orphic religion was a church of its own that rivaled Christianity uh, for four centuries. I believe it's four centuries. And, and then there are those who say that there's no Orphic religion, that it was merely an invention, that it was a bunch of, yeah. of individuals using books of Orpheus to go visit rich people who had recently lost relatives and get paid to produce some kind of a ritual. It was pleasant to experience and would guarantee that your relative wouldn't suffer the just consequences of their actions. And so we don't know which one it is. There is a good argument that nothing that we have is really Orphic. And there's a good argument that Orphic religion was a very important influence. and certainly was through Plato and the Neoplatonists. And what we then do is we look at how, as we go through history, the Orphic influence repeats itself over and over again, how powerful that influence is. It is, it's almost a, a catalyst for countercultures in Western history over and over again. And we found some just phenomenal examples of just amazing things. And even in Rosicrucianism, there's, there's Orphic elements and, and Orphic symbology that's used in, in the manifestos. So, as we went through the history of Europe and of opera and you know, I mean, you know, the revolution when they decided that Eurydice was going to be saved by Orpheus, what, what a revolution yeah, well, that in opera. An,
1: opera. an opera convention, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, so this is, is something that, that we were, we were surprised by what we found. And we were also delighted by the evolution of Eurydice because through literature, and especially through female writers, Eurydice, who is voiceless, winds up having one hell of a voice. And her perspective mm-hmm. on Orpheus is hilarious and, and enlightening and wonderful. And there's poems by various poets who've, who've written on this and have developed it over time, starting with HD, I would say, really, in more or less modern times. And they have, they have mm-hmm. completely changed Eurydice into something else, which may in some ways be be appropriate, because when you look at the very earliest history, sometimes Eurydice saves Orpheus. There was there right. seems to be some sort of a, a, a matriarchal even element there that survived. So we look at all of this and then we present our version of the hymns, which while they are based on the hymns, and I think the Athanasius translation is wonderful did a great job of simplifying and taking out the formulas and making it something that you can actually enjoy and use uh, in a way that's much more difficult with something like taylor or the more formal translations we wanted to and this has been a preoccupation of ours for a long time we wanted to include the elements of the characteristics and cult of the various gods because the reason that the hymns were so formulaic was that those who were performing them were expected to know what those gods what the attributes of those gods were and why they were calling on those gods but we as the readers don't don't have any context so Tamara and i went back in and we we put in cult objects and just just themes that appear in ancient times associated with these various deities and then at the end there's a big annotated bibliography that obviously can't do justice to the explosion of the work but but there is a lot of older studies that are included. And you can almost see in the bibliography that the way the history of of this has progressed.
1: Well, all this sounds like an exciting outlook on what is to come. And well, it explains why I said that we are certainly have to meet again at the latest early next year to speak about all that when the first of these books, at least, will be out, and uh, well, looking forward to that. Thank you for sharing it with us already today. Likewise, I'm, I'm looking forward to coming back. Absolutely. Well, Ronnie, uh, thank you so much for your time. I mean, it was really great to have you, the mirror image of the book, uh, or making the ordinary extraordinary, so to speak, and uh, hear the stories from your end and. Uh, chat with you also on a number of other things thank you for your time and um, thank you for being on this anniversary day with the south hermes podcast on the new radio station that's all very exciting and um, well good luck for everything and uh, well maybe you have a final word for us
0: i'll give you a final word but first i have a favor to ask you rudolph do would you be i don't know if you can do it but would you be willing to ask me the first question again because i i just wasn't focused and i feel like i i my first impression wasn't very good
1: um i don't know if i can because i don't remember it (laughs) 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 because i don't script i don't script those things at all you know (laughs) well that's a great answer i can accept
0: that it will stand
1: (laughs) no honestly it's not it's not it's not because i don't want to but i i just have no idea what i asked you an hour 15 ago (laughs) Uh, but honestly if if i had felt that it would be Weird or whatever for you, right? Um, I wouldn't. I would have stopped and 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 st- I wouldn't. I wouldn't let it out. Don't you worry. Okay. Well, I appreciate right?
0: that. That's good to know. Um,
1: I will. I'll leave you with but, Um If, you, if I, may. I don't think, uh, yeah, yes, just just let let give me two seconds to cut and then start it. Okay, so because I will cut this out. Yes, right. Understood. What we just said. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: So I'm going to leave everyone with this quote from Ficino since we were just talking about Orpheus. He said, this is one of my favorite quotes. I learned from Orpheus that love existed and that it held the keys to the whole world. The whole power of magic
1: consists in love. well what else there is to say thank you ronnie goodbye now thank you rudolph That was L.A. River, of course, also by Lucid Nation. And to give you once again the names, the titles of those three um, pieces of music by Lucid Nation that you heard before the interview, before we started, it was Fun by Lucid Nation. Then in the break, there was Las Vegas, The Instrumental. And now this was L.A. River. And in between, it was, of course, briefly Tamra Lucid, but mainly Ronnie Ponciak. And it was, I believe, a really lovely talk. Um, a very, very nice man and um, gave us a lot of insight and also into his personality. And we're looking forward to those books that he's going to publish um, next year. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this here on the Thought Hermes podcast again. Right. So um, next Sunday, in two days already, there is a new regular episode. Though that was then the anniversary week with four episodes. Can you imagine the two regular ones on Sundays and one two days ago with Lionel, and now this one with Ronnie Pontiac and. Lovely to have you as always. I hope you enjoyed this very special week and do not forget to go on Kaikobat Radio to listen not only to Source Hermes podcast but to many other podcasters that do a great job out there and you just tune in and always find great content. You don't have to fiddle around. Isn't that a big advantage? Okay, so for now take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.